for those of you that are here today, uh, we've gone through the end times, and we I handed out most of you this. Uh, if you didn't get it, you can get it after service. Uh, we also have them over there if you want to raise your hand if you would like one of these right now. Uh, this is a timeline pretty much discussing everything that we've talked about with Scripture and whatnot uh, for the end times. So if you want that, you can raise your hand. Um, and as we do that, I have to be really, really honest with you about something. I feel like a kid on Christmas morning talking about this stuff. Um, I think you'll see why. Mark 14, uh, 13, I'm sorry. So excited, I wanted to skip over the whole thing. Mark 13, verse 24. But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars of heaven will fall and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send his angels and gather together his elect from the four winds, from the farthest part of the earth to the farthest part of heaven. Now learn this parable from the fig tree. When its branch has already become tender and puts forth leaves, you know that the summer is near. So you also, when you see these things happening, know that it is near, at the doors. Assuredly, I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away till all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. But on that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Take heed, watch, pray, for you do not know when the time is. It is like a man going to a far country who left his house and gave authority to his servants and to each his works and commanded the doorkeeper to watch. Watch, therefore, for you do not know when the master of the house is coming, in the evening, at midnight, at the crowing of the rooster, or in the morning, lest coming suddenly he find you sleeping. And what I say to you, I say to all, watch. Father in heaven, how humbling and hopeful helpful are these words. We pray now understanding that we are fully dependent on your spirit for any understanding that we have. Word of God speak. In Jesus' name. Amen. Darkness best Simply defined is the absence of light. In Genesis 1, the first words of God recorded in Scripture, let there be light. And you, most of you living in Florida, has there anybody that's here today, anybody in here that has not been through a major hurricane here. Anybody? No, okay, no, no, you've not been through a major hurricane? 
Okay. If you've not been through a major hurricane, all right, then you might not understand this. We go for long periods sometimes without electricity, long periods without light. And there's nothing that gives you an appreciation for light, nothing that gives you a greater appreciation for light than having been in the dark. So if you've ever tried to wander around your house after one of these hurricanes at nighttime in the dark, and you're trying to use uh, the measly little cell phone light, it really doesn't help a whole lot considering uh, how dark it really So God's first lesson is very important. Let there be light. The is the first thing that he says is very important um, because out of the darkness, the greatest opportunities for light emerge. With the fall of man in the garden, there's a longing for hope, a longing for light. With Noah in the ark with his family, I can imagine that at times it was dark in there and they were longing for light. With the children of Israel in bondage under the Pharaoh and in Egypt, we can imagine that there was a longing for hope a light at the end of the tunnel. In John 1, it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with the Word. All things were made through Him that were made. In Him was life, and that life was the light of man. And the light shines in the darkness, but the darkness did not comprehend it. So when we take a look at human history, the idea, and we take a look at the Word of God, and we're just going to see how God brings this whole thing together between Genesis and Revelation today. Um, when we are in periods of darkness, it creates the uh, longing for the light. The darkest moment in human history is when that light comes, and the darkness doesn't understand it, and what mankind does, they put their Creator on a cross in the darkest moment in human history. However, it's because of the cross, and it's because of that darkness, we can understand the light uh, that comes off of the cross and that emerges from the tomb. Now, as the church, you're called to be light, because he put his light in you. And the times out there, you would not disagree, are dark. I was talking with Anthony last night uh, at dinner, and one of the things he was telling me was that his cell phone keeps giving him news alerts. And these news alerts are always dark, and they're ugly, and they're about brutal human behavior. Yes, we're living in dark times. Does anybody here have a longing for light? Because if you do, then this is the book for you. Now, here's the thing. Sometimes we look outside now and we say, wow, it's pretty dark out there. It's pretty ugly out there. There's going to come a time when you the church, the light of the world now are removed. As we talked about the rapture, there's going to time when the church is removed and at that moment, evil on this earth is going to be unrestrained. Darker times are coming still. It's what is called the tribulation, the darkest moments that the world has ever seen. In Mark 13, verse 19, Jesus said it like this, for in those days there will be tribulation such as has not been seen since the beginning of creation, which God created until this time, nor ever shall be. Darker times are coming. I hope you're all encouraged. Take that home and have a great week. Dark times are coming. Have a great day. Thanks for coming today. Listen, this 
dark time is necessary. Persecution of the church. Persecution of the saints that are left during the tribulation. It's going to be a terrible time. But understand the difference as we've been discussing. The tribulation that we're experiencing now is because we're simply in a fallen world. Sometimes our tribulation in our life personally is because we've made bad choices sometimes. Sometimes we bring some of those tribulations on ourselves. But there's also the tribulation because of the fallen world that we're living in, that every time we try to improve it, things that we utilize to improve it uh, seem to uh, almost make it worse at times. But then there's the tribulation that comes with God's judgment. And this time of great tribulation, the Bible is oh very consistent in talking about the tribulation. Daniel in the Old Testament talks about the time of tribulation. The Gospels talk about the time of tribulation. The letters talk about the time of tribulation. The book of Revelation talks about the time of tribulation. So you can take it to the bank that there's a time of tribulation that's coming. But here's our caveat today as we study these passages. And yes, we're going to delve into Revelation. Please understand this, that sometimes this book is not linear. And let me explain what I mean by that. All right, sometimes we're reading in Daniel, and Daniel explains something that we can't possibly understand unless we open the New Testament. And so that'll be explained in the New Testament, maybe in the Gospels, uh, maybe in Revelation, maybe in the letters. So Daniel will say something that we need kind of the Gospels to understand. And the Gospels will say something that we kind of need the letters to understand. And Revelation opens up everything. But you need one for the other. So we can't sometimes just look at and cherry pick a passage um, to try to make it go like this, because sometimes it's kind of like your life. How many of you start out the day saying, okay, well, first breakfast, and then workout, and then work, and then home, and then church, and you start off and you hope that it's going to be linear and that it's going to go like this, but your life is kind of like uh, this book, and it kind of goes boom, 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 and it's kind of like being on Space Mountain or something like that, where you're getting rocked and rolled and, and uh, turned over and upside down and whatnot. So listen, sometimes in studying God's Word, we need to be students of it. And students of it, we need to dig into it to make sure, okay, what we see in Daniel, how does that make sense with what the Gospels say? How does that make sense with what the letters say? How does that uh, tie in Revelation? And so it's very important that as we're studying this, because it's a glorious unfolding, and the Bible is kind of like an onion as you unpack. That's from Shrek. No. <laughs> Ogres are like onions. Now, the Bible is kind of like an onion. It's like as you unpeel it, there are more layers to it. And you found this. The more you study God's word, the more you say, wow, this is deep. Wow. 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 I mean, I love it when I get texts from the guys and gals at this church saying, Pastor John, I was studying this. And wow. Wow, 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 wow. I love those moments. Why? Because when I'm studying, that's what happens to me. I'm sitting there. I didn't know this. There's going to be something that opened up at the end of this study where I looked at it, I was like, wow, whoa. And it's that's God's desire to dig into them. That's why Jesus would so often speak in parables. All right, who are the ones hungry? Because the ones that are hungry and the ones that are called by the Spirit, those are going to be the ones that come and they ask me the questions about the things that I don't understand that he's talking about. So that's the caveat. And let us also understand this, is that when it comes to Scripture, if there's a discrepancy, 
well, this church teaches this, but this church teaches that, and this church teaches that. If there's a discrepancy, the fault of it is the church's, not the book. Please understand that. The book is inspired. We ourselves simply illuminate it. When we study, we ask God to give us understanding of it. And so it's very important that we approach these topics, I would say passionately, but also humbly. Because this stuff, this is the kind of stuff where, man, you really don't want to be wrong about it. So I would encourage you all to know why you stand where you stand. That's the last part of the carry of the uh, caveat. Let's get back to the hopelessness. Okay. Okay. Back to hopelessness. As we were saying, okay, there's coming this three and a half years. So after the church is raptured, as you can imagine, hell on earth. The kids are watching Left Behind right now. It's going to be hell on earth at that time. Um, for the church at that moment, Corinthians 5 and 1 Corinthians 3, as we looked at last week, where we'll be judged by what we did with what we had, but you won't be judged for sin because that was covered on the cross. So that's called the judgment seat of Christ. But then there's this thing called the Great Tribulation. And we've been talking about that, the abomination of desolation, the Antichrist arising, uh, making a covenant with Israel, sitting in the temple three and a half years through that, uh, through that uh, relationship, three and a half years, he himself sits in the temple, claims himself to be God, erects an idol, hell breaks loose. These are the darkest times that the world will see because after that ultimate act of idolatry, God will begin to pour out his wrath. Now, here's another challenge in reading. In the book of Revelation, you have to understand as you read it that it alternates between what John is seeing in the heavenly vision and between the events on earth. This is really, really important as you're reading this book. All right, so we're always having to pray for discernment through anything that we read in God's word, but especially Revelation, it's especially difficult to understand because sometimes the scene changes uh, between heaven and earth. Um, but here's what you have to know, and that's going to be uh, Revelation 5. Let's start here, because as we're talking about the tribulation and the things that are happening on earth, there's a scene that unfolds in John's vision in heaven. And this scene is oh so important to our understanding of how dark things are going to get and where our hope is going to come from. So it's Revelation 5. And it says, And I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll written inside and on the back, sealed with seven seals. Then I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and to loose its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or look at it. So I wept much because no one was found worthy to open and read the scroll or to even look at it. It's locked. It's sealed. One of the elders said to me, do not Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed to open the and to loose its seven seals. And I looked, hold, in the midst of the throne and of the four living creatures, and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb as though it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God. 
sent out to all the earth. Then he came and took the scroll out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. Now when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, each having a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which were the prayers of the saints, and they sang a new song, saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation, and have us kings and priests to our God, we shall reign. Stop right there. Why is John weeping? Because the scene is utterly hopeless. If this scroll and whatever is on it is not unraveled, then what's going to happen is, is that God's plan for this earth and the salvation of it all will not ultimately be revealed. God's plan to uh, bring everything into consummation and into fruition will not be revealed unless somebody proves worthy. No angel can do it. No human can do it. Nobody in heaven can do it except the Lamb, which is also the Lion of the tribe of Judah. Now this is important because at this moment, what you see in this passage is sorrow turned to singing, as only God can do. Right? It starts with the weeping of John's. How many of you have ever been in just dark, hopeless situations? All right? What changes it? The same thing that personally changes your dark situation is that same lamb who is a lion, who died on your behalf to give you hope and that loves you so very much. But there's hopelessness and there's weeping, but it's necessary for the Lamb to do this because if that scroll doesn't come and if the seals are not unlocked and unleashed, then all will not be made right. Justice will never be served. Love will never come to its full. So, Revelation 6 through 8 discuss the seals being opened. And in Revelation 6 through 8, all you have to understand about these seals being opened is that God's judgment with each seal is unleashed in the form of the Antichrist, in the form of pestilence, in the form of war, in the form of destruction. But after the seven seals, then what you have are seven trumpets. But then after seven trumpets, seven bowls, three sets of seven is what you see in Scripture. So you've got first the uh, seals unloosed, uh, unleashed, and then you have the trumpets, and then you have the bowls of wrath that are poured out. This will be held on earth. Why seals? The seals will be unlocked by perfection. All right. The only way that those seals will be loosed is by perfection. They'll be unlocked and unleashed by perfection. The trumpets, well, what you'll hear when you hear these trumpets is an undeniable proclamation. And after the trumpets, you'll have seven bowls, and there will be an unstoppable pouring of God's wrath. Is it getting dark enough for anyone yet? Okay. 
because if you notice in the greatest stories, in the stories that we gravitate towards, what we gravitate towards are those moments that are dark. Haven't you, like the TV series or those movies that you watch or those books that you read where you look and you say, wow, how how, how are the heroes going to get out of this situation? Have you ever looked at that and we said, wow. And then the greatest authors create the greatest scenarios that look absolutely and utterly hopeless, yet there will be hope. Because in that moment, two witnesses will arise. During the time of the Great Tribulation, that last three and a half years, there will be the arising of two witnesses. And these witnesses, Revelation 11. Now, we look at these two witnesses, and it says here, um, then I was given 11.1, Revelation 11.1 says, then I was given a reed like a measuring rod, and the angel stood, saying, Rise and measure the temple of God, the altar, those who worship there, but leave out the court which is outside the temple, and do not measure it, for it's been given to the Gentiles. And they will tread the holy city underfoot for 42 months, 36, uh, 42 months, three and a half years. And I will give power to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy 1,260 days, three and a half years clothes and sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands standing before the God of the earth. And if anyone wants to harm them, fire proceeds from their mouth and devours. And if anyone wants to harm them, he must be killed in this manner. Stop right there. The two witnesses we take a look at. And this is time for pastoral apology, actually. Uh, as we take a look at these witnesses, there are two main theories concerning the witnesses. One, that they're Enoch and Elijah. The theory is because they never tasted death. Now, Hebrews 9.27 says this, that it's appointed for every man to die. All right? But as I was talking in conversation last week and answering questions, what happened was this. It's like I, I, a question was brought to me, rightly so, of uh, saying, well, if everyone has to taste death, well, then what about the rapture? Great question. Really good question. Forced me to think a little bit, all right? Because uh, if everyone is forced to attend, then there's the rapture. You can't really build that argument. That verse rightly translated, Hebrews 9.27, that it's appointed that everyone taste death. Well, basically, it's not a requirement of a person. Basically, what it is, it's just a natural progression, all right? It's, it's normal for a human being to die, is what that verse is saying. It's not that they have to. Otherwise, the rapture wouldn't make a whole lot of sense. Nor would the uh, saints being caught up, in, nor the rapture in any way, wherever it stands. That's not what the verse is talking about. When you see people like Enoch and Elijah taken up without dying, it's more of an example for rapture than any man. Because it shows the exception that these men will not die. More likely, the second theory about who these two witnesses are makes sense. And that is Elijah and Moses, though we cannot be definitive about it, but here's why. One represents the law, one represents the prophets. And if you're familiar with the moment of transfiguration, who appears to Jesus? Elijah and Moses. But read verse 6 of chapter 11. These two men, it says, they have the power to shut heaven so that no rain falls in the days of their prophecy. Who had the power to do that? Elijah, right? All right, and then it says, and they have power over waters to turn them to blood. Who was given that power? That was Moses, right? And so we can assume this, but here's the thing. The Bible doesn't tell us who it is. 
So we can't be definitive about it necessarily. We can make an educated guess, but we can't be definitive nor dogmatic because the Bible isn't. And if the Bible isn't definitive about it, then they're f- And what they do is more important than who they are. That's really important. And so these witnesses get killed. They're resurrected. Uh, during- the other thing, and the other reason we can have hope during this time, because during this time of tribulation, there will also be revival on this earth. All right, there will be a lot of Gentiles that sat there and said, after the rapture, they're going to sit there and say, uh, oops. Yeah, oops, missed it. Yeah, exactly. And that, that's, that's who you don't want to be. All right. Um, but there's also going to be the saving of 144,000 during that time. And that's discussed in Revelation 7. Now, Jehovah Witnesses say it's them, but the Bible says it's not. Okay, and that's about as simple as we can put it. In Revelation 7, it basically says that there's going to be, uh, they're going to be saved out of the different tribes. Uh, and you don't have to turn here for this. It says out of the tribe of Judah, 12,000 sealed. Out of the tribe of Reuben, 12,000 sealed. Out of the tribe of Gad, 12,000 uh, were sealed. Stop right there. And it'll lead you to 144,000. But you're saying, well, how would they ever know this? Because all those genealogies are lost. If you talk to many Jews today, they don't, well, I'm from the tribe of Reuben. I'm from the tribe of Gad. They don't know. We've lost track of them. So how could this be true? Well, just because you lost track of something doesn't mean that God did. How many of you have ever lost your keys? Guess who knows exactly where they are? No, it's not St. Anthony. He does. Okay? (laughs) God knows where they are. All right? God knows everything. All right, and so now there's going to be a time of revival during that time, and this is very important because God loses track of nothing. And again, darkness, unlike the world has ever seen, a system of buying, a time of selling, uh, the mark of the beast, the 666. You have to understand, if you read Revelation 6 through 18, the scope of things that you see as far as the destruction that's coming is something unlike any movie that you could ever imagine. Billy Graham talked about this period like this. He said, The Bible plainly forecasts the coming of yet another great war. It will be a war to eclipse anything the world has ever seen. It will embrace most of the nations of the world, and its focal point will be in the Middle East, where the armies of the world will someday deploy themselves centering at Mount Megiddo. This great war has been called the Battle of Armageddon. In the midst of this terrifying war that could destroy civilization, the scripture describes this great battle in the 16th chapter of the book of Revelation. The sixth angel will pour out his vial upon the great river Euphrates. We are told that the waters of the Euphrates River will be dried up, that the way of the kings of the east might be prepared. The dry riverbed will permit unhindered passage of the great armies of the east to the scene of the battle. Unclean spirits, demons, will go out into the world to the kings of the earth to gather them to the battle of that great day of God Almighty. Verses 12 through 16 of Revelation 16. The armies of the world will focus at this point known as Mount Megiddo, also known as Armageddon, and there the final world conflict will take place. The extent of this conflict is indicated in the ninth chapter of Revelation, where the army that is to cross the Euphrates 
uh, is described numbering in 200 million horsemen. 200 million horsemen. Now think of this for a moment. You've got 200 million horsemen. It says that there's going to be 144,000 Jews that are saved, plus the Gentiles that are saved. And here's what you're thinking, I hope. You're thinking that this looks utterly hopeless. And I bet the children of Israel thought that when they were standing at the Red Sea. And I bet that Daniel might have felt that for a moment when he was standing with the lions, or that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, as they were being thrown into the fire, wondered how this hopeless situation was going to be resolved. Or that the disciples, when they saw their Savior take his last breath on the cross, looked and thought, well, now what are we going to do? This is the darkest scenario that could possibly ever be created. And this is the heart of the tribulation and the challenge that we go through. And that's why I love this message. That's why I felt like a kid on Christmas morning preparing this, because I grew up with heroes. I grew up with them. I grew up in a great age, man. Really. I grew up where I was watching Fonzie. All right? Hey, listen, you bang a jukebox when it's not working, and you have it working, and then you tell me about how super cool you are. All right, I grew up doing the Lone Ranger. I grew up with Superman and Batman and Tarzan, though I never understood why he was dressed the way he was for kids. All right? And so I grew up during this age, and then as I got older, I wanted more heroes. I had a saxophone teacher that became a hero to me. I had a father that was sober now, 44 years, that became a hero. A mother that became a hero. A grandfather that was saved at one of these crusades like we're going to be going to. By Billy Graham. And these people became my heroes. Here's one thing that they had in common. Every single one of them let me down. But they were all meant not to become my hero. They were meant to point me towards the one hero of the story. That's Jesus Christ. He's the hero of the story. He's the hero that you've all been longing for. He's what this whole end times thing is about. He's all this whole end time thing is about. And if you want to see what the hero of the story looks like, before we watch a scene from this movie, turn to Revelation 19 and you're going to see it right here. It's Revelation 19.11. And it reads like this. Now I saw heaven opened. This hopeless moment when the world is at war and hell is broken loose, I saw heaven open and behold a white horse. And he who sat on him was called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges his eyes like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one except himself, uh, that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, White and clean followed him on white horses. That's the church. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, and with it he should strike the nations, and he himself will rule them with a rod iron. He himself treads the winepress of fierceness and robe, and on his thigh the name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Stop right there. That's the hero of the story. That's the only hero of the story. If we make the hero anybody else, any church figure, any biblical figure, then we've gotten it wrong. That's the hero of the story. Now, there's a great depiction of this. This is one of my favorite scenes in all movie history. We're going to watch it now. It's from The Lord of the Rings. Uh, it's from number two. It's called The Two Towers. And in this movie, it's the hobbits. It's the elves. It's the dwarves. It's, the, uh, it's mankind. And they're about to get crushed. 
in a rebellion. They're about to get completely crushed. And so what we're going to do is we're going to watch this scene right now. Um, and this gives a great, to me, it gives a, an amazing picture of Armageddon, I think. going to be the word that proceeds from his mouth. He's going to be with his church. But let me explain something to you, and this is what's really cool. All right? That same power of Jesus has been put inside you the moment that you ask the Holy Spirit to come into your life. And while there are dark times that are going on in this world right now, you have light inside of you, and you have truth. And it's that powerful. 
And why are we shrinking down? Why are we shrinking down? Let's get out there and tell people. Because judgment's coming. I mean, it, times are coming, yes? We've seen that. The Bible makes it clear. No matter where you sit with the timeline, it really doesn't matter where you sit with the timeline. What matters is this. Is that he's coming. This is the truth. And when he does, here's what happens. Look at verse 17 of chapter 19. It says, Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried with a loud voice, saying to all the birds that fly in the midst of heaven, Come and gather together for the supper of the great God, that you may eat of the flesh of kings and the flesh of captains. And it just went from being really cool to really gross. The flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and those who sit on them, and the flesh of all people, free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast, the kings of the earth, and their armies gathered together to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. Then the beast was captured, and with him the false prophet who worked signs in his presence, by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were cast alive into the lake of burning fire with brimstone, and the rest were killed with the sword which proceeded from the mouth of him who sat on the horse and all the birds were filled with their flesh. Stop right there. The Antichrist, and you know, this is light Sunday morning teaching. Uh, the Antichrist and the false prophet get a head start. They get their head start in hell. And so here you have the second coming. That's the second coming. That's what's called Armageddon. Then after that, Chapter 20 talks about Satan being bound for a thousand years. Bottomless pit, it refers to. And what we see with this is pretty important. And again, we're not going to go verse by verse, chapter by chapter. We hardly have the time to do that. But what you need to understand is that after this moment, Antichrist, false prophet, uh, they are... They have had judgment pronounced on them. Satan is bound for a thousand years, but God still has a purpose for him. The thing that you have to understand about Satan is that he can never do, God bless, he can never do more than he's allowed to do. Satan can never do more than he's allowed to do. A lot of the time, God will allow uh, temptation to expose uh, our hearts where we're at to allow testing, uh, times of testing, but nothing that has ever happened Nothing that Satan has ever done has ever gotten past God. And all he can do will ultimately glorify God as it exposes it, us, as it, it, we self-examine, uh, as we're purified. But during this time, it's going to be called a millennial reign, a thousand years. And we believe in a literal thousand years, because the Bible talks about a literal thousand years, where Satan is going to be bound in a pit, and during this time, it's going to be the equivalent of heaven on earth, where the perfect administration will have come. All right? It's going to be heaven on earth. So we had hell on earth. Now you're going to have he heaven on earth for a thousand years uh, with Jesus as the Savior. Jesus is the leader. Uh, when we talk about this millennial reign, it is referred to over 400 times in Scripture. In 20 different passages in the Old Testament, which deal with this time where Christ will rule and reign. And here's the thing, the devil will be bound. So we can no longer say during that time period when a man sins and they will be able to, we'll no longer be able to say the devil 
made me do it. During this time, Israel will be the superpower of the world. And this is all described as you take a look at verses 4 through uh, 6, um, this millennial reign that's discussed. Uh, and this is going to be, again, a time of perfect health care. It's going to be a time of perfect provision. It's going to be a time in this world where we're going to see for a thousand years how good things can be with Jesus, without Satan. But man, at this time, during this millennial reign, listen, will still need to choose for Jesus. And there might be many people that externally are part of the kingdom, but that are not internally part of the kingdom. And God's got a way of revealing that that we're going to see in just a moment. But during this time, there will be no war and conflicts with nations and individuals, but they will be justly and decisively resolved by a Messiah and those who reign with him, his church. This is the time when Jesus is reigning with his church. The animals are going to relate to us different than ever. We're going to relate to one another. We're going to see each other differently than we've ever seen. It says in the book of Isaiah, a little child will be safe and able to lead a wolf or a leopard or a young lion or a bear. Even the danger of predators like cobras and, vi cobras and vipers will be gone. Frogs will still be dangerous. No, I'm, kidding. I'm, kidding. I'm just kidding. I'm not sure the frogs are not going to be dangerous. Uh, there's going to be a thousand years, listen, of heaven on earth where the church is reigning with the Messiah. People at that time are going to live to unheard of years. The book of Isaiah tells us that they're going to, that it's for somebody to live to be a hundred years old, it will be like they're a kid, the book of Isaiah tells us. And it's just going to be a time uh, of heaven on earth with Satan bound, but there will still be the sin nature of men, and that will be exposed. Look at chapter 20, verse 7. Now when the thousand years have expired, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather together to battle, whose number is the sand of the sea. They went up on the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city. And fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. The devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Stop right there, please. Listen. You're sitting there saying, how is mankind against God after having seen how bad it can be, after having experienced a thousand years of rule under Jesus? How could man possibly choose against God? And then I'll challenge you to go the whole day without sinning. How can mankind go against God? All right? Listen, after the children of Israel were delivered from Egypt, what we're going to see in the book of Numbers is a series of complaints that prevents them from going into the promised land for an extended period of time. How will man choose against God after having everything be perfect? Will be probably looking to Adam and Eve, the children of Israel. You get the point. This will be the ultimate indictment of mankind. 
And so no man will ever be without an excuse from a just judge, from a just God who for a thousand years gave us heaven on earth with his church reigning, with people living under perfect conditions. The great white throne judgment is talked about in verse 11. And what you have to understand about this great white throne of judgment, it says a great white throne of judgment, verse 11, who sat on it, from whose face the earth and heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and books were opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged according. Listen to this, because this is really, 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 really important. The, the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the book. Stop right here. Here's what you got to know. Is that when the dead are judged before God. Now, this is not a time for believers to be judged. This will solely be non-believers, and they will be judged by what they did. Robbing a bank will have a different punishment one man putting to death six million Jews. You get the point, right? All right, so people at that time, they'll be judged according to their works. And at that point, at that great white throne of judgment, that's when final judgment will be offered for eternity. All right, and at the great white throne of judgment, that's when Satan is going to be judged ultimately, and the Antichrist, and the beast, and everyone that turned on God and everyone that did not receive Jesus Christ as their Savior, that's when hell is coming, and that is eternal, conscious torment. Okay, so yeah, that, it, it, it's unfathomable, really. It really is. When you sit there and you go, well, well I mean, how could, how could God allow that? How could a loving God permit something like that? Has anybody ever wondered that? Well, you know, it's like if they sinned on earth, you have because they had the opportunity to choose from the tree of life. And to partake in the things of eternity, it is a choice of mankind. And that brings us to the very end. Now, Satan is crushed. The Antichrist is gone. Everyone that chose against God is gone. And now what you've seen is final judgment uh, through the end of chapter 20. Then what we have in chapters 21 and 22 is the establishment of the eternal kingdom. New heaven and new earth. Now, when Jesus um, talks about this to his disciples, he gives an explanation um, in verse 32 through 36 when it comes to this time. He says, but of that day and of the hour knows not even the angels in heaven nor the son but only the father take heed watch and pray for you do not know when the time is it is like a man going to a far country who left his house and gave authority to his servants and to each his work and commanded the doorkeeper to watch watch therefore for you do not know when the master of the house is coming in the evening at midnight at the crowing of the rooster or in the morning, lest coming suddenly he find you sleeping, and what I say to you, I say to all, and that is, watch, watch, because at this time, this is when the ultimate reward is coming, 
and that's what we see in Revelation 21, and this will be the very last section of Scripture that we cover. We're going to take a really quick look at it, and we're going to talk a little bit more probably Wednesday night on it. But check this out, because you'll get the point. In Revelation 21, verse 1, it says, Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and earth had passed away. Also, there was no more sea. Stop right there. A new heaven and a new earth. So sometimes when we think about the end like this, what we do is we think about Star Wars and the Death Star, like blowing up planets, and boom, they're incinerated and they're gone. But uh, it, I think it's better described like this. Uh, Tony Evans describes it. He says, at that point, every molecule, atom, proton, neutron, will disintegrate only to be replaced by a glorious creation, a new glorious creation. Now, this makes sense to us in our understanding of the character of God, because it says for anybody that's in Christ, he's a new creation. The old things have passed. Behold, all things have been made new. When I look at this room full of people, I look at people that have been made new. Miraculously, a change in heart. The old things will have passed away, the Bible says. And then we take a look at this, this new heaven and new earth, and it says there, there's no more sea. How many of you have ever been bothered by that? You live in Florida. Right? You live in Florida. You should be looking at that thing. There's no beach. There's no beach. There's no ocean. What is it? It doesn't say that there's no water. It just says that there's no sea. All right? It says that there's no sea as we understand it. But here's the thing, and this is where we kind of need to check our heart, because sometimes we take a look and we say, well, you know, in order for it to be heaven, there have to be dogs there. In order for it to be heaven, there have to be horses. Or I've heard people say, or grandma's got to be there, or my uncle's got to be there, or my parents have to be there. If it's going to be heaven, it's got to have that. Whatever it is that you look at, well, if it's going to be heaven, it's got to have that. You're wrong. Because one thing is necessary for it to be heaven, and that is going to be the presence of Christ, as it's described in verse 2. Then I, then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven. Now get this picture in your head. A new Jerusalem, a new city coming down out of heaven. And again, we can't fathom this because we take a look and we say, you know what? If it's going to be heaven, there's going to be no sea, but there's going to be a city. Maybe there should be less cities and more sea, right? We would take a look at that. But it says here that it's going to descend out of Jerusalem as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, behold, the tabernacle of God is with men and he will dwell with them and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death. There shall be no more sorrow. There shall be no more crying. There shall be no more pain. The former things have passed away. Then he who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said, Write, for these words are true and faithful. Write it down, because this time is coming. It's a new heaven and a new earth that would be really, really hard to talk about all of the things and all of the implications of this through a quick study like we're doing today. But here's what you have to know about heaven. Heaven is a place, and it is the place where God is most fully revealed. In a blessed state, it is the place where God is most fully revealed. So here, you have the opportunity to experience peace that surpasses understanding. We're called to it. Uh, love. 
unconditional love. You can experience through God, even through the pain of this earth, and unspeakable joy. These are all things that you can experience now, but nothing compared to what's coming in Revelation. Nothing. This is it, gang. This is the whole thing, because it brings everything together. There's a lot that we won't get to, but here's what you do need to understand. As I was praying through this this morning, people were saying, the Word of God, can you trust it? I think so. Here's why. Because you have Genesis, which is creation, and you have Revelation, which is the culmination. And what makes it all make sense is the crux, which is the cross, which is the pivotal point in all of history. Let me explain. In Genesis, what you have is the creation of heaven and earth. All right? In the Gospels, what you have is heaven comes to earth. In Revelation, you see the destruction of heaven and earth and the creation of a new heaven and earth. So you have Genesis, the Gospel, and Revelation. The establishment of God's kingdom. In Genesis, what you see is the start of Satan's reign. At the cross of Jesus Christ in the Gospels, you see his defeat on the cross. And in Revelation, you see his final judgment and his reign comes to a final end. In Genesis, you see sin enter the world. In the Gospels, you see Jesus lead a sinless life. In Revelation 21-27, you see sin In Genesis 3, you see the pronunciation of a curse. On the cross, you see Jesus reverse that curse. And in Revelation 22, 3, the curse is... Genesis 3, you see access to the tree in Genesis 3. It's It's not just the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It's also the tree of life. And after the man and the woman sin, you see that that tree is cut off. In the Gospels, Jesus hangs on a tree. Cursed is any man that hangs on one. In Revelation 22, verse 2, guess what comes back? The tree of life. The tree of life comes right back. Genesis 3, 4, man is evicted from the garden. The gospel, Jesus is challenged in the wilderness. Revelation 22, man is invited back into the garden, back into paradise. Genesis 3, the entrance of death into the gospel. Jesus overcomes hell and death. Revelation 21, death forever is removed. You see the marriage of the first Adam. Then you see the groom go to the cross for his bride. And the consummation of that marriage you see at the end of Revelation. It brings everything. Oh, onto it, presents it for us. The entrance of sorrow, Revelation 21, you see. Now made it celebration and worship forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. So how do we close this? Close this. How do I dare close a talk on the end times? confusing. They're even in conflict. Here are the takeaways. And I pray you as a church, take these simple, these simple takeaways for this. One. What we see through the end times is God is holy. He must judge. Anybody disagree with that? No. 
2. God is love, so he will save. All right? Does anybody disagree with that? 3. Things are going to get worse before they get better. I don't think anybody disagrees with that. 4. The true hero is coming back. 5. He wins. 6. We will be saved by grace through faith, so choose well. 7. We will be rewarded for what we did with what we had. Stanley. I close you with a crow quote from C.S. Lewis, the final battle. And as he spoke, he no longer looked to them like a lion, but the things that began to happen after that were so great and beautiful that I cannot write them. And for us, this is the end of all the stories, and we can most truly say that they all lived happily ever after. But for them, it was on the beginning. It was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. Now, at last, they were beginning chapter one of the great story, which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, and which every chapter is better than the one before. Let's pray. God, we thank you again. Lord, there's so much here. Oh, we could talk about the size of the city and the gates and the, all sorts of symbolism, and we can go there, and we will. Uh, but God, we just thank you for the truth, and that is that Jesus is coming back. But as long as we have a pulse, we have a purpose. And as long as there are people dying, then we the living need to bring them the message of hope. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.